This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, yay. Welcome to Enemies. My name is Lisa Traeger. Thanks for joining us again or for the first time. We're going to learn a lot this episode. We do have a professional. If you do hear the washing machine in the background, I do live in one room and time is time is wild when you're podcasting and traveling this is it you're gonna and you live in a room you will be hearing the combo washer dryer and it is kind of not in good form to bitch about your combo washer dryer like it's a privilege to have one but it's so loud it takes six hours for a load and sometimes it shakes so violently um like that simpsons episode when bart puts the washer and dryer in competition with each other um so that was really exciting i got gifted a lot of weed in denver and i'm loving this new future for me where people just want to get me drugged up everywhere i go thank you so fucking much i don't even know what day it is or what's happening or when or what to fill you in on but that is a good sign i guess the only big the big negatives in my life can't stop eating foods that make me feel sick and cannot clean up piles of clothing but that is a running theme so like i said nothing new a recommendation that's not new at all but julie louis dreyfus is truly tv magic she's better than everyone and i'm watching seinfeld back to back and she's just the most stellar sexy incredible comedic person ever and then veep and everything but i can only get hbo on my laptop not the tv yada yada oh another seinfeld little a little quip so i'm just gonna get into this you guys i think you can tell that i'm struggling to get anything together because of i don't know what i'll blame it's drugs baby it's drugs and sadness this week we have a professional we have a divorce mediation coach so she does divorce coaching co-parenting mediation and any sort of divorce mediation services in colorado it was a pleasure to talk to Liz Merrill. We had such a, for me, insightful conversation. So much good scoop and deep, vulnerable thoughts, chats. She shared about her own life, her own journey, and client stuff with different people and what she's learned through all her mediation. And, you know, I'm always asking questions and we just had a really good time. If you want to know more about her, she's Open Space Mediation. She is in Colorado and she is also on this enemies episode of the podcast today let me know what you learn tell me everything give me your scoop i love hearing from everyone the fact that anyone listens is thrilling also i'm like so close to a thousand followers on the instagram so tell a couple friends i don't care if i'm desperate i do have to do a cameo later that's kind of an enemy it's like a pleasure to do it but what's what's with this 24 hour you pay extra and you demand it in 24 hours i am not a show pony i'm a girl that likes to wait till the last minute so go fuck yourself um no thank you so much to everyone at all times and enjoy this cool episode with liz merrill (laughs) 
Yay, Liz. Hi. Hi. Thanks for doing this. Well, I am so intrigued. I'm like, yeah, I'm very excited to have someone like you with your expertise. And I'm wondering if you can like go into your journey of how you started doing this work and Mm -hmm. decided to focus on divorce because it's not really just relationship counseling. It is divorce counseling, right? Exactly. So I just would love to know your kind of journey in counseling and how you ended up focusing on divorce. Sure. Okay. So my background is actually in something totally different. My background is in professional, classical, um, orchestral playing. I have been a professional oboe player for like a really, a really long time, like decades. And well, I do have an oboe question if we're going to oh, okay. do that. The Let's spit valve and all the why is that like gross or do you get used to all of it? Or like that's like what I think of is that little reed thing in the spit. I like how is spit valves are on like brass instruments. They have this like little thing and they blow in and there's they're spit, you know, and so they always have like a like a ton of that, you know, underneath her chairs. And we have reeds, like little, you know, reeds that you stick in the top and you have to soak them and then blow on them. And then you stick it in the top of your horn. Yeah. And then sometimes like condensation from your horn will drip out the bottom. It's not as bad as the brass players, though. They That's why they go in the back because they're really disgusting. <laughs> Is there a competition between oboe and brass or like the fl- the wind and the... There is. Oh, my God. That's such a good question. You know, like different sections of the orchestra have a reputation, right? Like brass players are known for being rowdy and drinking and, you know, making fart jokes and flute players, have, you know, have a reputation for being uptight and type A. Oboe players also have a reputation for being uptight and type A, actually. Um, but I am not either of those things, which is why I don't make the best oboe player sometimes because I'm not a type A kind of person. And viola players have a reputation for being kind of derpy. But no, there's not really like, we don't have like gang wars okay. you know, <laughs> on the stage or whatever. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a sad instead of all the beautiful music and like how much practice it takes to be good. I'm like, what's with the spit? But that is where yeah. my brain uh, goes. It's, it's a real thing. You're playing oboe as your life mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah, I was playing oboe as my life for a while. I ran to play. I really loved it. I played in Europe some. I used to live in England and played a lot there. And that was really, really fun. And then it just sort of moved around and then landed here in Fort Collins and decided that I was getting kind of burned out, you know, because being a freelance musician is... A, it pays badly. B, it's really grueling. You're traveling all the time. You're playing on different stages all the time. You're playing with different people all the time. And there's always like, you know, the pressure to perform, the pressure not to fuck up. So, you know, and um, I I was like, I'm getting too old for this. So I started um, thinking about other careers that I wanted to pivot into. And, um, Mediation was was one of the ones that I was thinking about because when I went through my divorce, uh, we had mediation. Everybody here who gets divorced and has children is pretty much always required to mediate by the courts. And so we, I went into this mediation, and it was it was so horrible. It sucked. I, I you know had a bad experience, and but it didn't jade me. It was like this. I can see how this would be like a really 
good tool to help people have conversations, especially if they've got kids and especially if they're going to have to continue co-parenting together long after the divorce is final. So I looked into it, did all the training to become a mediator and, you know, started mediating. And I, I did all kinds of mediation and then kind of narrowed it to divorce mediation. And then I started, I started getting phone calls from so many people who are in what they call high conflict divorces, which generally is like a euphemism for a d- divorce with somebody who maybe has a personality disorder or who might be described as a narcissist, even if they're not clinically diagnosed as a narcissist. And those kinds of people don't make great candidates for mediation because they don't follow rules and you know, they, they well, don't nothing's always, their fault. Nothing's their fault. They don't have any ability to self-reflect. They have this all or nothing thinking, this black and white thinking. And that's what that's not what mediation is about. So I ended up having to turn these people away, but they still needed support. And so I started supporting them individually and then got training in high conflict mediation and high conflict coaching, divorce coaching, and then just regular divorce coaching. And so now I do a lot of that and kind of um, spend most of my time supporting people who are in this place because not all courts and not all attorneys and not all judges really understand that, even though they they probably see it every day and probably everybody who comes into their courtroom or their office says, I'm divorcing a narcissist, right? I mean, Everyone who's divorcing is divorcing a narcissist. Well, I was going to say um, narcissist is a word that's like been overused, like toxic and um, sociopath gaslight. Like the, it is a part of our language where the words maybe have been diluted, but they do mean something. So how do you tell the difference between, oh, this is a narcissist versus, OK, they're an asshole, but they're not a narcissist. Right. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. If you ever spend any amount of time on social media, you see all those words, like you said, like narcissist, gaslighting, flying monkeys, trauma bond. You know, there's like a whole list of these buzzwords that people use all the time. It's hard to parse that out because obviously narcissists don't think there's anything wrong with them and they don't like march into a psychiatrist's or a psychologist's office and say, hey, I think there's something wrong with me. Would you diagnose me, please? I think I have a personality disorder. They don't do that. But the fact of the matter is, on the other hand, that narcissism is on the rise. And there are all kinds of studies that show that it is on the rise sort of culturally and in, in like individually and in people. What affects it? Just like the internet? I thought, because I thought... Can you grow into a personality disorder so you're not born with it or more people are being born with it? I think it's both. There are some people who say that personality disorders are are things that you're born in, they're generational um, or that, you know, I don't think they're usually thought of as genetic, although I could be wrong. But a lot of times people think that it's to do with like an attachment issue or something that happened in early childhood that's developed into this personality disorder that's really designed to protect this inner child who felt rejected and it's too horrible for an ego to think that like your parents don't love you or that your parents don't have your back so you you build this wall of protection around yourself right so that you don't have to consider that because that's the worst thing that you can consider it it like affects your your sense of safety, right? And and, uh, can you live in the world if your parents aren't looking after you? 
Having said that, though, I mean, culturally, obviously, there are indications that it's on the rise. And I think that some studies have shown that that it's higher. There's a higher prevalence of it in younger people. Um, So so some people test social media. How do I how do I phrase that? What's the right? They 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 think that that has to do with social media. Right. And and just sort of being self-obsessed in that way. And it's not, you're right, that's not like necessarily um, a sign of an attachment disorder because somebody likes to post selfies or whatever. I, I think point being, there's a lot of stuff that goes into what people are seeing as a rise in narcissism. But going back to your original question, how can you tell if somebody's an asshole or just a narcissist? You can't necessarily but you can what the courts are starting to do now is call these people high conflict personalities or high conflict people in these divorces high conflict divorce and so that term high conflict is sort of like an umbrella term that covers a lot of area it covers people with type b cluster personalities people who have traits of different ones oftentimes they they're also they also coexist with substance abuse issues because they're trying to self-medicate or the way that they the way that they live the way that they cope the way that they interact with the world doesn't really work for them so they end up developing substance abuse issues it's really kind of a catch-all term for this type of behavior and and that type of behavior there are a lot of different kinds of behavior patterns that fall under high conflict personality so all all or nothing thinking um, not being able to self-reflect, not having empathy, not following rules, not thinking rules apply to you, not having a problem using people or using the system, like the court system, to their advantage. And, you know, often you see in these cases people filing motion after motion after motion that just don't mean anything or not responding to requests for, you know, documentation from attorneys or from the court and whatever. So it's really more of a description of um, behavior patterns. Now, this might be a leading question, leading the witness, but is there a gender breakdown to the narcissism and the people that are all or nothing? There are more male narcissists than there are female, and there are more female people with borderline personality disorder Mm. than male. That's a pretty blanket statement that most people would say is true. So where you live, the court's demand a mediation for all divorces, mm-hmm. not just high conflict. Um, yeah, or, pretty much always. And especially, especially if there's children involved. And do you ever have chill ones? Do you ever show up and it's two people that just really can't work it out and it's kind of an easy breezy mediation? If so, what's that percentage and how does that go? Yeah, I I do sometimes have like incredibly chill ones like Recently, I had this young couple, um, and they were ordered to mediate. And I don't even think they were married. And they had a little kid, and it had to do with parenting time. And the court had ordered them to mediate, and they both showed up in their respective cars, like sitting in their car, which is you know, like a lot. You'd be surprised by how many times people show up for these things, like in their car or walking down the street or at work. Uh, mediating like really personal things but they're sitting there in their cars and the kid is in the back seat like waving at me and talking to me and um 
we, you know, we started in and I kind of give the spiel about what mediation is and what we're going to do and what we're not going to do, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, so what do you guys have to talk about today? What are your issues? What do you want to sort out? And they're like, nothing. We agree on everything. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why are you here? Are you sure? Are you sure you don't disagree about this? <laughs> what What about that? You, you're you like, yeah, no. But then do good. you ask like, we love then, each other. Then why are yeah. you getting divorced? Well, they... Yeah. Well, they weren't even, I don't even think this couple was married, but they were like, we just, we're not good partners, but we're good co-parents. And so, you know, we still want to support each other. We still hang out, but we, you know, we just need to, you know, we needed to do this because the court told us to, and we need to have a parenting plan on record. So that was really awesome. It was like half an hour and, and they were happy and I felt like an awesome mediator. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then sometimes people show up. Mediation. It was so it was so awful. So we're doing everything in Zoom, right? So one person comes at one time and another person comes at another time. That's usually the way it works. So the the male came first and he and I were talking. And then the female came in and she's like, What are you talking about? Seems like you were pretty cozy there. What's going on here? And I'm like, We're just talking, waiting for you. And she just started in on me. It was clear that she had some kind of issue. And I, I obviously am not qualified to diagnose what that was. But she was just like on me. And I got so triggered. And I'm like, I can't. I'm not going to mediate for you. I can't mediate for you if you're going to attack me. Right. And she's like, I'm going to call the Bar Association. I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> that is totally fine. <laughs> obviously, that one didn't last very long either and didn't go very far. But most of them are somewhere in between the really easy one and and the one where the woman attacked me and accused accused me of having a relationship with her husband. (laughs) Immediately. (laughs) Well, and this is... I've done several women marrying women relationships, and I'm doing one right now. And they have all been pretty much the same as hetero relationships you know they have the same issues they have the same communication concerns they have like similar hot button issues and communication problems i did um a mediation kind of recently and actually um because what happens a lot is that people when they when they get divorced they think that they have to hire attorneys right because that's that's what you do. Like you go get an attorney and you lawyer up and you, you, you go that route. And that route is so expensive and it's very just contentious, right? I mean, attorneys often will really drive up the conflict and make it worse and make their relationship worse and make their ability to co-parent worse. So I was mediating for these two women and they really all they needed to do was be in the same room. And be able to share their feelings a little bit and be able to get underneath the positions that they were entrenched in and have a conversation and really get back to why they cared about each other and loved each other in the first place, you know, and find agreement that they both wanted what was best for their daughter. Right. And as soon as we were able to get there and as soon as I was able to start like pointing out like, you guys both, you, you both want this and you both want this and you both feel this way about each other. These other things can be sorted out. It was great because, you know, they cried. They had a conversation. They yelled at each other. And then they were like, yeah, 
we don't actually want to be going down this path that we feel is being driven by our attorneys. And then, and then they started laughing about their attorneys and how they didn't like them. And um, then we wrote up a stipulation. And, and it, at the end of the day, when you are divorcing and you have a child, your primary concern is and should be what is in the best interest of the children. Right. And it is not in the best interest of the children for you guys to be at each other's throats and for people to be working at odds with each other because you're going to have to be working as a team for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Now, has there ever been a couple where you're like, you guys can just work this out, don't get divorced? Or is it always like, oh, yeah, get divorced? Usually by the time they reach me, they're pretty ready. Although having said that, there there are some that so sometimes people come to me for a therapeutic separation, right? They're like, there's something wrong, we can't get it fixed, or somebody has an alcohol problem, or somebody has some mental health issues that they need to spend some time sorting out, or um, I just can't stand living with this person and I can't get space to work on myself, figure out what I really want. And so a therapeutic separation is sort of this intentional planned period where you're separate and you make it you make a decision about what that's going to look like and how you're going to communicate and who's going to do what and who's going to pay what bills and when you're going to get together and when you're not and if there's their kids like what the parenting plan is going to be and then you kind of leave it to them to to do that and see how they feel and see if they gain some clarity on what it is that they want or whether they do want to get divorced or whether They've had enough time to kind of work on their own stuff that they're able to come back together and reconnect and start working again on on their marriage. I've done a number of those and generally, I, I think all of them have ended up going on to get divorced. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, it's sort of like a trial run, I guess. Yeah. And is it hard for you not to pick a side? <laughs> Sometimes it is. And sometimes, you know, you're not supposed to, right? You're a, you're a neutral third party. But sometimes I'm really surprised. I'll think I know what these people are going to be like when we get into mediation. And then I'm totally wrong, you know, and I'm totally surprised by, like, I'm often surprised by the men because I, you know, I, I hear more stories of, um, from 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 females about abusive partners that's just that's just the numbers that's not me it's just people who are calling me but sometimes i'll go into mediation and, I'm, and then i start talking to them and i realize that that the guy is actually not an asshole or he at least he doesn't present as an asshole and i know that that's you know that there's that common occurrence when you when you are dealing with a narcissist who can present really calm and really cool and collected and charming and suave and intelligent and i and i see that a lot but sometimes i see people who are who are just genuine and and they're, they're they've just gotten so far apart from each other that they don't know how to communicate they're so triggered by each other that they the way that they react is out of context but they're actually you know they're just like normal people who are who are suffering and trying to figure it out but you can um, tell between someone that's faking being a like a good person and not an asshole versus a genuine. Well, um, I suppose not always, and I don't know how and how I would know at the end of the day. But there are sometimes when I mediate, and and you know, someone is like, 
you could he he bamboozled you didn't he he charmed you and i'm like no he didn't no i could see that you know i could see that this was an actor i could see him seething underneath his his calm exterior i mean you could especially if you spend a lot of time living with somebody like that or talking to someone like that or working with people like that you could see it I had a couple weird friendships and like once, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but once you deal with like a narcissistic, uh, sociopathic type of person, it's very clear when you see it out in the world or when you watch mm-hmm. reality TV. And I'm like, oh, I've dealt with someone like that and you are yeah. not going to be able to reason. They will never actually care about their apology. It's just to placate you. They will talk yeah. shit about you after and say how it was ridiculous. You even asked for an apology. Like once you kind of are in that. Yeah, I, you always... You always see what's happening. Well, you would hope so. But there, you know, I I talk to so many people who are in their, you know, second or third or fourth relationship with a narcissist, you know. Well, that's what I always say. It's like what I've been learning is I have a couple friends where I'm like, oh, you married your parent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the idea of like recreating familiar, comfortable relationships, not realizing it's detrimental to your being. And so like. I wonder, yeah, just people repeating patterns and not being able to grow. And is that them not doing therapy or just not able to deal with the problems? Like, why is someone going back to a narcissist time and time again? Yeah, I think this is a a therapist question, but I think you're right. It seems obvious to me that a lot of times these people have had those types of behaviors imprinted on them. And it comes from their mom or their dad, and they just play it out over and over again until they get sick of it, right? And they decide they want to walk away from it. Um, Or they don't, because the discomfort of being in a relationship with somebody who's emotionally abusive, who's a narcissist or whatever, is, is preferable to the discomfort of, like, working on yourself, getting out of those familiar relationship patterns and those those conflict cycles because it takes takes a lot of work and i've i've you know i've listened to some people talk and i've read pieces that compare being in a relationship with a narcissist to like being an addict right Mm -hmm. and that when you when you engage in those kinds of cyclical conflict patterns it's similar to stuff happens biochemically similar to when you're engaging in addiction. So it's so it's hard. I mean, it's absolutely hard. It was hard for me. It was hard for me to get out of it. And it's also really hard to admit, right, to yourself. Like, I have been with this person for so long and I have been I've been living a lie or I I've been telling myself this story that this person is horrible and I'm the sad victim and here's my sad story, right? You get really into your story. And again, I talk to a lot of people who really can't get out of that, right? They're really embedded in that victim story. And I see a lot of that. And it's it's you know, on the one hand, it's kind of frustrating and it's also painful, you know, because there's nothing that you can do, there's nothing that I can do really to to help people through this it's sort of like a thing you need to do therapeutically and it's a thing you have to decide on your own like i'm done with this i'm gonna have to change my story i'm gonna have to really rework a lot of things in my head and in my life and the choices that i make and the relationships that i have and how i feel about myself and analyze my part in this i don't want to sound like i'm victim blaming at all but a lot of that is folded into 
your ability to kind of overcome that? Well, and now I'm thinking, you know, I feel for these people that are in these patterns with a narcissistic, emotionally abusive person. But then let's say there are children involved. Does the conflict come that you don't want your children being around those people? Can those people still be good parents? Or are they always going to like play weird games with the children? Like, how do you kind of are they going to be emotionally abusive to the children? Do you have to keep your children away from your dad and mom? But also, I always hear, and maybe this is just like television speak, but it's always like, you know, the, this is the father of my child. I want my kid. I'm not going to talk shit about them in front of my kid. Like, I want my yeah. kid to have a relationship with this person, but you're being emotionally abused by this person. How do you navigate those kinds of mediations with children and someone that's an abusive character? Yeah, that's so... It's another really good question because it's also really hard, right? Because the kid can blame you and be like, you're keeping me away from my parent that I like. Yeah. And then you kind of go into this whole area of parental alienation or, you know, what they call parental alienation. But I mean, if you if your partner is a narcissist because of the way that he was raised or the kind of um, parenting he had from mom or dad stands to reason that he might pass it on to his kids, right? And his kids might become either a narcissist or a codependent, you know, or a victim or a target, as they're sometimes called. So, so yeah, like I was in a relationship and it kind of looked like that. I did feel like I had to protect my kids. And, um, and I actually was talking to somebody yesterday who was describing some of the patterns of behavior in her in her house that felt really familiar to me, um, you know, of trying to get in between, you know, the child and the, you know, and the other parent and, and still feeling like, I guess I'm going to stick it out. I get, I'm, I'm just, you know, there's a lot of denial, honestly, that goes on in this kind of, in this kind of scenario. Um, when, and then when people finally decide they want to get divorced, a lot of times they've just gotten to the point that they that they cannot even stand the sight of that person. They reject them out of hand. They hate them. They're the devil. They will do anything they can. And they, you know, and that when you have that kind of thinking, you're prone to make mistakes, right? You're prone to talk to your children about their evil dad, which is not appropriate or throw all of your money at litigation and make decisions based out of fear and anger that that don't serve you or your children very well. Um, and and sometimes people, you know, on, on the flip side of that are just like, they've just given up and they're, they're like, whatever, just uh, give them anything. I don't care. I just want to get out of this. I just want to get through this as fast as possible. And that is always not a great option either for you or your children. Um, and then when, when you are going through um, a divorce with somebody like that, you have to balance the expectation that, especially the court's expectation that parents are going to have 50-50 parenting time or that's going to be the starting point, right? And you can be like, I, I don't think that my child is safe with that person 50% of the time, you know, and then it's your job to prove to the court that they're not. And that that's, that can be really, really, really hard, especially when you're dealing with somebody who you know, presents is very charming and then, you know, is a totally different person behind closed doors. Um, and you also, you know, might want your children to have a relationship with that person, even if they are fucked up because they're the only dad they're going to have. Right. So there's a lot of tricky, mushy area there. And is the judicial system like our judges equipped to 
see someone that's not real or they just have to kind of go with the facts and be like, it's 50 50. Like, how do you prove, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Do they know about this stuff or are they just numbers? I I don't know. And I think some of them do and some of them don't. Right. And I think that I, I know that a lot of attorneys like hear 50 times a day, people coming in and saying, my spouse is a narcissist. Right. And they have to like, take that with a big old block of salt because obviously not all of them are a narcissist. I think some of them tend to shut down when they hear that, like, okay, here we go again, blah, 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 blah. You know, it is hard to prove, right? And so they, they like when I was trying to find an attorney, they were like, yeah, everybody says that. What What's your proof? How are you going to prove this? Because if you can't prove it, then, you know, you're just um, bumping your gums, you know? No, nobody's going to believe you. Um, and were you able to prove it? Yeah. 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 That's not always the case. And if you want to prove it, you have to do a really good job of documenting, right? Documenting patterns of behavior, because that's where you will have the underpinning to the storyline that you create, right? Is, you know, creating a, a storyline based in patterns of behavior documented with facts right and and evidence right not just emotional facts that i'm putting in your quotes yeah i think a lot of times judges and the judicial system doesn't recognize or isn't equipped or doesn't have the bandwidth or maybe just doesn't care about about certain types of cases because as as we've been saying it's hard to prove that's one of the reasons i try to write about that and I you know and I try to give talks about that because I want I want it to be understood so that people don't get screwed and so that children don't get screwed and that's like I said that's one of the reasons why I went into this um and I I don't feel like it's my job to tell attorneys how to do their job but I think that if people who are going through this and attorneys who are working with people who are going through this have education and have information and know what that looks like and know how you can help people who are going through this kind of divorce, help them prepare themselves, help them like center themselves emotionally, help them become credible clients and credible witnesses, then they're going to have a better chance of telling this story and not looking like they're crazy town. Because all too often, you know, people, people go into court someone's all triggered and emotional and the narcissist sits there and is really calm and starts accusing you know it's like not uncommon for the narcissist to say yeah well she attacks me on a regular basis you know she physically attacks me or she's you know she's a whore or she she abuses her children or projects what he does onto her and then she's like what the fuck what are you talking and and then she looks crazy and and the more you deny it the the crazier they look or again they shut down and they don't say anything and then they look like they're just not arguing with it so the friend that was such a narcissist it was always like i can't even lie i always tell the truth i always tell the truth and like always everyone else is lying and then once you get out of it and then you talk to other people it's like all that person was doing is there was no truth to anything they said at any time yeah and yeah. rejected it onto everybody else. Yeah. And it's. You yeah, know, you have to keep have... your cool. I mean, right now with like watching the Supreme Court justice, oh, um, the interviews and how calm and collected and mm-hmm. chill she has to be because if and she does anything, she will not have yeah. this thing. And watching her is like it's painful. Masterclass. 
she i mean she's like she's amazing it, it, yeah she you does keep her cool she's cool. not crying she's not pitching fits i did not- <laughs> there was one she did tear up with cory booker but it was like beautiful yeah. tears and uh yeah. so that was like very lovely to see finally but <sighs> yeah, you have to stay calm because they're always manipulating. So they're just like never yeah. in a place. I just was on Instagram and it was like Nora Ephron's rules of life. And mm-hmm. one of them was don't marry someone you wouldn't want to get divorced from. And <laughs> that awesome. made me think like, you know, we're talking about personality types and people that just have this. Uh, do you see people are marrying these types of people or do people change like do sometimes relationships bring the worst out of you and you become something or were you always this the whole time can you talk a little bit more about that yeah like um is someone always been vindictive or do they become vindictive like did you just marry a narcissist at 20 and then at 40 you're like fuck i gotta get out of here or can you like, are you in love and it's a great relationship and then it dies over time in other not clinical ways and it becomes high conflict? Or do these people always have that vindictive nature in them when you meet them? Oh, OK. So uh, that's how do really you know question. how you're going to because I love that quote, but it's like, yeah, everyone's great at your wedding, day, you know, or is it yeah. like, oh, or can you tell at the wedding like this is going to be not not be good? You know, like yeah. I wonder what 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 happens in the switch if there is even a switch. So like sort of classically, a narcissist is able to put on this persona, right? This public persona that presents well as charming, is confident, intelligent, you know, blah, 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 blah. And often you hear when people are getting into a relationship with somebody like that, there's this honeymoon phase where they, they like put you up on this pedestal and, and they're like, you are the best thing that's ever happened to me. You are like a goddess. We are soulmates. And let me fly you off to, you know, wherever and shower you with gifts. And, you know, it's just this fabulous thing where, you know, th- th- you feel like an amazing goddess. And then kind of things start getting weird. And you're like, that didn't really feel weird that you um, totally ignored me all night and were flirting with the, you know, waitress. And they're like, what do you mean? No, I mean, that, or that didn't, you know, that didn't feel weird because, or that felt weird because you were, you know, you're an asshole to me in front of your friends. No, that was, no. And then they kind of go back and you, and you start thinking like, you start getting these weird uh, mixed messages, but then you think, no, 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 it's fine. And it gets more and more and more and more and more, right? And and you're becoming more and more invested into that story, like of this guy is awesome. Look how successful he is or handsome or whatever. And you kind of ignore those signs and you get more and more entrenched. And then those signs become more and more frequent. And then you are you kind of go into this denial thing. Um and then before you know it, it's 20 years down the road and you're like, shit, I got to divorce this person now. I, I know I know what he's like. And, well, I'm um, scared. It's, it's going to suck that I'm going to be susceptible to it because I live in a romantic fantasy where like I really want to meet somebody and like fall in cool love and then be married immediately. And then mm-hmm. it's like, how do you know what's like a love bomb situation versus like, wow, I found true love. Like, is there mm-hmm. a way to know? Well, I think that the way that you know is if they treat you the same in private as they do in public, that's a big one, Mm. right? You can tell something about someone's character by the way that they treat 
people who they they view as lower than them, like waitresses or, you know, janitors or whatever, if they seem to not believe that regular laws apply to them, like it's okay for them to drive crazy town and speed all over the place because that's just for chumps, you know, speed limits are for chumps, that kind of stuff. Those are all red flags. But I think that that really the big one is, is, um, how do people treat you privately? Um, because that's the, that's the thing about domestic violence, isn't it? I mean, it's, it happens domestically in a house behind closed doors. And that's why it's so hard to prove. And that's why it's so infuriating. Because um, they know what they're doing. And that's what I tell a lot of men often that don't understand how like prevalent domestic violence and sexual assault and all that is. It's like, these guys aren't doing it in front of you. They know exactly mm-hmm. what they're doing. You know, I've it, like they're doing it in secret and on purpose. Right. Like, yeah. I know he's cool at basketball on Sundays, but what are you talking about? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but back to your question about whether or not they, they can develop over years and decades. Maybe. I don't know. Well, because, you know, um, the number one like kind of um, cliche thing I hear or used to hear maybe is like money. Money's the root of marriage problems. It always comes down mm-hmm. to money. Mm-hmm. Can it really just be money? Like I, turn someone into an asshole or just that leads to divorce. Like they can't just be like. Uh, money, right? Because it's always like, I, I mean, it's like such an old school 90s thing, but it's it was always uh, blamed for divorces, I feel, is money yeah. problems. Or do money problems add distress? Like, are there high conflicts where there isn't a personality disorder and it's just oh, someone yeah. financially ruined? Like, what are non-personality disorder divorces look like that are also high conflict? If you've got somebody with other kinds of mental illness or addiction... That can become pretty high conflict. A lot of times I think courts view high conflict divorces as two parties being high conflict. And that can be the case, but it's not always the case. Sometimes it really is just one person being a total fucking asshole and the other person just trying to cope, right? Even if you don't want to think that, that is sometimes true. But yeah, people get, you know, people get really bent out of shape after years of, um, of being married, you know, and, and patterns develop and they become entrenched and your storyline becomes entrenched. Or maybe people do change. If they're not personality disorders, they're just personalities that develop over years and change. Sure. And someone who used to be kind of normal becomes, you know, a shitty Trump supporter, right? That you don't want to be married to anymore. Well, that's the story. That's like the theory with Casey Musgraves. I don't know if you're a fan of her music or know about her, but she's uh-uh. an, an incredible uh, country pop star. And mm. she had a really popular album that's considered like one of the best albums ever, Golden Hour. And it was about oh. being in love with this man. And it's like such a romantic album. And then he became jealous of her success, became MAGA as fuck, and she divorced him. And then this newest album's about the divorce. Mm. But we don't know about the MAGA, but I did hear a lot about that. Like people became yeah. like, what the fuck? Are you, or you assume yeah. someone's like pro choice. And then one day after seven years, you're like, wait, what? I don't like, I guess that does happen. You just assume someone believes what you believe or yeah. the MAGA of it all. People became Trumpy or anti-vax. It's a really interesting um, time that we live in, right? Because narcissism on a personal level is on the rise. 
culturally it's on the rise, you know, and I think that having somebody at the top of the political, you know, peak being like the king narcissist has just like normalized that kind of behavior for all of the people who thought, you know, secretly, like, this is kind of the way I, I feel, but I'm not going to say it out loud. And then all of a sudden they're like, just let, letting their freak flag fly. And um, coming out of the closet is um, assholes and bigots and racists. And, and you got to get the fuck out. Oh, my yeah. God. I know. I know. It's um, it's weird and I can't wrap my head around it. And what I, about, like, what if it's just a cheating? Like, someone cheated. Yeah, people get really bent out of shape about cheating, of course, you know. And I have a kind of, I don't know. I used to think cheating was bad all the time. All cheating was always bad, right? And then I, I you know, I got older and I started being an adult and being married and, and knowing married people and seeing that sometimes people cheat to stay in their marriage, right? Because they're not getting what they need at home or because they need some kind of affection or people, you know, people cheat for all kinds of reasons. And, and I don't, I don't always think that they're bad reasons, even though, you know, I don't necessarily like approve out of hand of all cheating. That's not what I'm saying. But basically, I mean, honestly, I think that marriage is kind of this sort of construct that's just really um, doesn't necessarily work for a lot of modern people, right? Yeah. Who are living a long time and who change a lot and develop a lot over the decades of their lives. I guess every every married couple has to decide what they're cool with. And if um, if they're not cool with it anymore, then, you know. Divorce happens. Why they just are in in a, in a marriage that's just driven by resentment and discord and unhappiness. Wow, I know this um, is so much. It is so much things. It's, it's deep. I don't know if I'll ever get married again, though. To be honest with you, I'm in a relationship right now with somebody that I I did what you weren't supposed to do after I got divorced. I like went on a crazy Tinder spree and just that's acted exactly like what you're my, supposed to do. Well, I was like in my twenties. I was like, "Yeah, I'll sleep with you. I'll sleep with you. I'll sleep with you." Woohoo! And um, ended up meeting somebody who I didn't think I was going to be in a long term relationship with. But here I am, a few years later, and we are, and it's great. And I don't think either of us are necessarily studying marriage. We live in separate houses. We have our own kids, and it's nice. You know, it's nice to come together and to support each other and to feel family alike and to love on each other's children and be a part of each other's families and do holidays and stuff together. But then be able to leave each other's houses and go back to our own and be the master of our own domain. And, you know, are you a Seinfeld fan or no? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's yeah. just where my brain goes when I hear that phrase. <laughs> and do you feel like your work as a mediator has made you like better at relation like this relationship or is it also learning stuff from that divorce yeah you've obviously implemented changes in separate houses and stuff like is that yeah. growth from all those things and yeah for sure i think so i think for sure and i mean i it's 
it's taken me a really long time to like separate myself and my identity from that marriage and that divorce. I still obviously have to deal with the blowback of that because we have children. They're doing really well, but they still are have been impacted by the family life that they had when we were still married and the dysfunction there and the problems that we had there. They were actually the ones who came to me and said, Mom, we think that it's time to, you know, maybe you guys should get divorced. And I was like, oh, my God, I thought I was being brave by staying in this marriage and trying to be a better mom and trying to be a better wife and trying to be a better house friend, trying to blah, blah, blah. And they all came to me and said that. And I was like, you were right. I'm going to go down to the courthouse today and we'll go do that. And I did. And that that became an easy choice. But still, I, you know, like still they, we all have to deal with the choices that we made when we were married and the choice I made to stay in that marriage and how I showed up and what I took responsibility for and what I didn't take responsibility for. And, and every day I like have to kind of reanalyze things because I see these things over and over again in other people's relationships. And it causes me to self-reflect and think, well, did I do that? Or was I like that? Or I never was like that. Or that was, you know, just just doing comparisons the way that you naturally kind of do. And I realized that some of the things that I do now that are dysfunctional, probably viewed as dysfunctional, are kind of like holdovers from that. Like, I am really hysterical about keeping my house clean. Because for so long, I got bowled out for having a dirty house, you know, like you're a terrible, you know, you never keep track of, you know, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff that I can't even believe that I sat and listened to for so long. But I did. And and now, like, when I see, like, a shitty, dirty floor, I'm like, I got to mop that. Oh, my God, I got to mop that, you know, because and I, I realize it's it's from that, just from kind of years of training, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, what struck with me while you were talking is you saying, like, I was working on being a better mom, a better this, a better that, a better that. And then I'm assuming you had a partner who was not doing those things. Yeah. No, he's like, he's the total opposite. He's very chill. He's very, um, yeah. No. And it's been, it's been wonderful. It's been like a huge blessing to, to be able to be in a relationship with somebody who is not that at all. Like, that total opposite end of the spectrum. Um, and it's just allowed me to feel, to kind of relax, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and feel okay being in my own skin and making my own decisions and um, kind of, yeah, being the master of my domain. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I see, and I would say my parents and other, a few of my other friends is, that I don't like, but, you know, I'm like a perpetually single person judging everyone all the time, but I really hate seeing uneven workloads in a home. Oh, God. And yeah. that is usually a gender divide. I mean, my sister married <laughs> an amazing man who I love so much, who does mm-hmm. so much great stuff, but it's rare and I just see these moms do so much and run ragged, but they also... They care. And so if they didn't do it, it wouldn't be done. But then you have these partners who are used to that and won't do it. And it is something that is a trigger for me because of Mm -hmm. my parents, very traditional. My mom cooked, cleaned everything. My dad, I mean, the fact that he wouldn't even put the dish in the sink to me is like so thoughtless. And so when I see it in my friends, it 
it does make me very angry and it's not my life. And I have to always remind myself I haven't, it's mm-hmm. not my relationship. But what is it? About, yeah, I don't even have a question. But any thoughts yeah. on the uneven yeah. workload oh in a God. home? <laughs> Fuck yes. 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 It's so it's so ingrained. It's so entrenched. And, and a lot of times people don't even realize it. They don't even question it. I have a group of friends and it's like an ongoing topic of dis- discussion because they're, you know, they're married and they're in these sort of open-minded, liberal kind of, um, you know, marriages, family dynamics, whatever. And still, it's always the mom's job to, like, buy the mother-in-law's birthday card, right? It's the mom's job to organize what the dad is going to, if even if the dad is going to, like, go out and go grocery shopping and take the kids to soccer. It's her job to organize the soccer trip, you, you know, to organize the, the shit that the kids take to the game with them. Put a list of things that have to be purchased to get, you know, have to be the managers of all of this minutia that most of the time guys don't even think about. And I know this is, like, like broad strokes and, uh, you know, but it's true, right? Most of the time it's mom's who do that and dads don't even recognize that that's a thing that you need to do like figure out whether or not you need milk from the grocery store right and it's simple you go open the refrigerator door and have a look and see if there's milk in there and if there's not then you need to go get it right but it's the mom that writes the list and, and you know what i've noticed out. The mom's like, yeah. is that the relationships where men do take an active role in that it's always judged it's always like, oh, God, he does so much. Yes, oh, God, yes. he's worked so hard. Look at him go. And it's like, yep. she's still managing a lot and planning a lot. Yeah. And you're just not seeing it. But it's like, even if a man is picking up the milk, it's like yeah. a round of applause. Yes. Or And we yes. feel bad for him. My sister one time kind of broke down where she's like, everyone just feels so bad for him because I'm this and that. And I'm like... You guys are in love. You met sophomore in high school and you're obsessed with each other and you're in your 40. Like, fuck everyone. They're jealous. I'm like, they're jealous <laughs> because their husbands fucking suck. That's why. And so I had to like mm-hmm. pump her up, but she felt inadequate because her guy was just caring and goes to the grocery store and no, and like is a good dad and likes to spend time with his kids. Everyone feels bad for him. And it's like, because he's an active father and husband, I don't get it. I that always yeah. it pisses me off too. Yeah, it's totally expected yeah, it's of true. moms and like awarded yeah. for fathers. Totally, 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 and it's galling. And people don't want to be shrews. Women don't want to be shrews. I mean, like, I don't want to be the person who's like, "Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you know?" Are you a um, Sex like, in the City person? You know, I was for a while, just sort of idly. Um, Miranda. But not like obsessive. The uh-huh. redhead had an amazing line and she said, no one wants to fuck mean mommy. And that's always yeah. stuck with me forever. Right, right, exactly. But if you if you want to get shit done, then you're like the mean mommy, right? You're nagging or you're, um, you know, you're a shrew um, or you don't appreciate it when, you know, dad takes them out of the house for the afternoon so you can have a rest you know that's that's great but when it just happens once in a while it's like you said like getting a big huge round of applause and a parade for doing that moms don't get that most of the time <laughs> you know, that's just what they do no you get judged i have some friends and if they're at the airport or there's a problem she sends him with the kids because people are so nice to him when he has hey. the kids alone with him she's like you go they feel bad for you and it works. And it's like, yeah. 
I don't know this idea of like why like that's the thing with marriage that I'm looking at. It's like men invented it for their own reasons. And we're in this archaic thing and it's for them to be taken care of all the time. And it doesn't really like bode well for women most of the time. It seems like it's like not beneficial. I don't know. It's hard to watch. I have some friends are like, I can't believe you see all this as a single person. And I go, oh, I see all of it. And I'm enraged by it. Yeah. Yeah. And rage where it's like, why do you have children if you don't want to take care of them? And it's a favor for you to take care of them. Right. Take care of your kids. Yeah. But kind of circle it back to to divorce mediation. This is what you see a lot of. Is people having been married for, you know, decades, having children, children get older and in people just like realizing. I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to be the person who is constantly doing the dishes and who is constantly staying on top of house frowing and I feel resentful. And then we have arguments about it. And then, you know, and then we have a bad time because we're arguing about the dishes and then we get divorced because she wouldn't put the dishes in the dishwasher. And it's never about like, did she put the dishes in the dishwasher? Did he or whatever? It's about like the years and layers of um, all of this unspoken stuff that's going on that starts building into resentment and building into well resentment really well so you because i'm a messy person i know if when i get into a relationship i will be the person that leaves things around or doesn't notice Mm -hmm. and i get if i get into my deep dark i i can i can live in piles how do you accept who you are and kind of if that's natural but your partner is doing all this. Are there ways to make them feel appreciated where the resentment doesn't build, but they still always do the dishes? Or do you have to go and help do the dishes? Or is if you're doing the kitty litter and you do the dishes, like how do you keep resentment out when you don't have the skills that are important to your partner? <laughs> I think it's like a communication issue, right? Yeah. And like how how you how you communicate and um and that is like something that we're not really taught early on when we should be is, you know, how do you, how do you communicate something in an effective way that asserts boundaries, but that's not triggering and that's not aggressive. So have you heard of the, the Biff model of communication? No, I would love to hear it. Okay. It's easy to remember. It's Biff and it stands for brief, informative, friendly, and firm. And it's something that that people are taught when they are in a relationship with a high conflict person that it can work, you know, with kids or husbands or whoever, colleagues. Uh, The idea is that you're paring down what you have to say and you're taking out qualifications, the explanations, the defensiveness, the, the, you know, like, here's why I'm asking you this. It's because of this and this. And here's the little backstory on that and blah, blah, blah. You just keep it really pared down if you need something. Just keep it really simple to the thing that you need. Can you pick up Brandon at soccer practice or whatever? Friendly, you keep the tone friendly and you keep it firm. So you're generally making your request or you're stating something and you're not giving a lot else that somebody can push back on or argue with you about or get bent out of shape about or, you know, get distracted by. That was something that was hard for me because in my home, it's very much like, immediate yeah like like, why didn't you pick that up you know or something like that and so when someone was biffing right being brief and formative (laughs) I took it as a personal attack though and I had to have a friend eventually say like I don't think you're a bad person I don't think anything is bad I just needed you to do this for me 
And it was a big breakthrough moment because I took, can you do this as an attack on who I was? That is so interesting. And was very defensive on very Mm. basic asks because I took it so personal instead of just do this. That's so interesting. Yeah, but it takes so much work. And like, I'm really lucky. I'm a comedian. I have a lot of free time. I I have an old professor call it navel gazing, right? I'm in Mm -hmm. therapy. I've, I get, I have to self-reflect to connect to audiences. And so I'm very lucky where I've had the time, energy, space, support to grow and think about all this. But if Mm -hmm. you're someone who does have a family and you're busy and you're working jobs and offices or manual labor and your, your brain is busy on so many other things, you might not have time to like deeply realize like, oh, I've been defensive when I shouldn't be, you know, like it mm-hmm, is a, mm-hmm. it's a privilege to be able to like grow your personality, I would say. Yeah. Because totally it's tough. Um, We will wind down. I, I Even though I can talk to you forever. But, you know, it's always like it's not the kid's fault. It's not the kid's fault. Mm-hmm. Is it ever the kid's mm-hmm. fault? Is it like has having kids oh. kind of fuck up people's lives? Totally. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> kids will definitely fuck up your life. You know, uh, people don't like to say that, but it's true. I mean, I have three teenage daughters and um, it's like a shit show around here, like an emotional shit show. Obviously, I love them more than life itself and they're angels and, you know, blah, 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 but they're not really. But but yeah, of course, it kind of blows up your life and it blows up your life for the rest of your life. And that's not to say that it's it's not worth it because it is. But sometimes, you know, sometimes kids are real assholes. And and especially when parents get divorced, kids know how to play their parents against each other, especially when people are in the early stages of divorce. Even young kids really get handy at like going over to dad's house and saying, mom, it's really mean to me. And she does this and she, you know, just sort of playing, trying to get what they can out of the other parent. And oftentimes that really turns into a huge court battle because, you know, Dad's listening to these horror stories about mom and all of a sudden he's calling his attorney and parents are getting like these these stories from their children that are completely blown out of proportion and they think they're getting abused over there or they, you know, or they they think all this this shit is happening that they need to be up in arms about because of, of, of what kids are saying. And that's just the way kids are. I mean, they don't mean to be that way. They're just trying to get what they can out of their parents. I'm kind of being tongue in cheek, of course. Um. But, Kids are beautiful baby angels sent down by God to bless us. But it's hard. I see. It's a hard life. I didn't realize I was. I didn't have that much gratitude for my parents until I saw my friends become parents and be like, "Oh my God, this is like, yeah, everything." You have to think of everything. You're just constantly having to feed them over so many things all the time. It's I know, I know. You <laughs> feed them, and then all of a sudden they turn around and want more food. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't stop. A lot of times when you're when you're mediating with co-parenting issues or parenting time or child support there's a lot of finagling around about who really wants the kids and why they want the kids and you know how it's tied to child support and like when somebody realizes that they're going to get more child support they will have to pay less child support if they have the kids more you know then all of a sudden it's really critical that they have the kids more often because it's tied to the money even though they would never say that i mean they're all it's you know divorce is about money and it's about the kids those are the two main things that cause things to like just blow up and and turn into 10 year tens of thousands of dollars battles yeah 
what? Any um, final thoughts for the listeners or advice or a horror story or a funny story or a positive one, you know, how, whatever, or whatever you maybe thought going into this that you were going to talk about that we didn't touch on yet? Um, kind of like the floor is yours for whatever you'd like. God, oh my God, so so much power. <laughs> the thing that I've learned is the importance of really self-reflection, like you're talking about navel-gazing, and more people need to do more of that, I think, and owning their part in whatever shit they're in, and being able to to recognize that, to own it, to learn and grow from it, and to make decisions from that is huge. Not being able to do that does cause relationships, not just marriages, to blow up. Uh, and also the ability to recognize your hot buttons and disengage yourself from that. You know, and there are lots of easy ways you can do that just by sort of using short little meditative somatic tricks will help you from saying things and making decisions that can really blow shit up, right? When I work with people, when, I, when I'm coaching people who are going through divorce, we spend a lot of time on that. We spend a lot of time on communication. We spend a lot of time learning how to disengage. Those are skills that if you were taught before you got married, would be really helpful as you're going through marriage and as you are having children and as you are having arguments about who takes the trash out, who does what around the house and, you know, who buys the mother-in-law the birthday card and, and whatever. I, I think those are skills that would be better served being taught pre-marriage rather than during divorce. Yeah. But you mentioned this earlier with like liberal friends, but like I do think a lot of guys think they're liberal and very progressive and feministy until suddenly they're married and they don't want to do the stuff because their mom did all those things and yeah. and they would never acknowledge that. But yeah. Yep. It's true. Well, we can have a whole other talk about that. So is there anything coming up or that you'd like to plug before we go that our listeners can check out? Yes, there absolutely is. I have a passion project that I'm working on, but it's born from me having three teenage daughters and all of their friends who are starting to date. And I've been listening to them talk and I've kind of been overhearing things that they've been saying. I'm hearing like a lot of red flags and a lot of stuff that I'm like, this, the, no, they shouldn't be doing this. They shouldn't be dating this person. It's freaking me out because I know that once you start establishing these kinds of behavior patterns and and aren't developing your ability to set safe boundaries and communication skills, it can really snowball and you can find yourself 20 years later in an abusive relationship because those are the adults that I'm talking to. And it also seems tough because teenagers don't want to listen to their parents and they're yep. reading things and watching television shows that kind of uphold like these wild notions of romantic love. Yeah. And you also like if you hate this person, will they like them more? Like, you know, that yeah. adds a layer, I feel. Too. Totally. Totally. So I got a loan. I got a Kiva loan to launch a social media project called Love Is Not. Love is not abusive. Love is not isolating. And the the goal is to create content to go out on social media platforms and hopefully be pushed out by people who have a bigger platform than I do and people who younger people will listen to. Because like you said, teenagers do not like to listen to their mom, but they will listen to influencers. And that's where they are all the time anyway. 
And plus, I don't know how to use TikTok. So what I'm trying to do is find people who want to support this project, who want to collaborate with me, find young people who want to be the face or the voice of this campaign so that I can get the ball rolling. And then, um, you know, hopefully it will kind of take on a movement of its own or or dovetail into other similar movements, because I think it's just really it's important. What are the most like concerning things that you've heard? Just like a whole host of of various things. Like my boyfriend doesn't want me to go out with my girlfriends. I've heard so many instances of sexual improprieties, abuse, just people put in positions that they don't want to be in and they don't know how to say no. And kids don't know how to support each other also. You know what I mean? They might see something that is raising a red flag, but they might not have the language or the resources to just know how to how to listen to someone talk or how to advise them or where to send them. And the statistics bear this out. I mean, if you if you go and Google statistics for relationship abuse in younger people, it's really shocking. And obviously it's higher in females and it's much, much higher in the LGBT com- community. And repeat all the information again, like where to find you and what is it called? The, the campaign is called Love Is Not. And it'll be hard to find right now because we haven't launched it yet. But if people want to reach out to me, they can find me on my website, which is Open Space Mediation. And my email address, which is Liz at Open Space Mediation. Thank you so much. I feel so grateful that you made time for this. This was really good. Really good to get to know you. Bye, you guys. Bye. See, I told you, did you not love it? Did you not get so much scoop and deep insight and want to question everything about your parents and your lives and what you're looking for? And if marriage is right for you and what you're going to do when you get divorced? Oh, also, don't ever forget to call on in with your problems. We'll get to them soon. 323-677-1943. If you have any enemy problems or suggestions and you want any sort of feedback, please holler at me. Thanks so much for listening and I appreciate it. And I hope you liked Liz as much as I do. I really um, enjoyed speaking with her on every level. It just seems like her and her daughters have a cool vibe going and I really appreciate that. I keep saying thank you. Honestly, you're welcome too for this fantastic insightful content. It's like I learned a couple vocab words and keep shoving it down your throat as my spaceship cleans all my clothes and then it wrinkles everything. And I, I refuse to learn to iron. I'm repeating things. I'm truly I heart Huckabee's the tuna sandwich Jude Law. That is me. That is all of us. That is my biggest fear. We all want to be. Do we want to? I was going to say we all want to be a Naomi Watts in the world of Jason Schwartz. I mean, Jude Laws, but none of that makes sense. But our heart Huckabee's is a very, very good movie. So I would definitely recommend that. Oh, another enemy I have. I would like to say planes without TV screens. Go fuck yourself. I might have mentioned it last week, but I experienced it again. I I honestly talk about planes way too much and someone sh- I need to put a rubber band on my wrist and slap myself silly anytime I mention airplane etiquette vi like moments at, at just it's really it's depressing. Um live your dreams. Enemies. Yay. I didn't watch the Grammys. I don't care. 
Enemies is a HeadGum Podcast. Trish Hadley is our executive producer, engineer, and editor. Katie Moose is our supervising producer from HeadGum. Me, Lisa Traeger, I am also a producer. Hello. Thank you so much, Carly Jean Andrews, for the cover art. You're incredible. Jack Krause, thank you for the theme music. I love it. Please follow me on Instagram at either at GlitterCheese or at Enemies Podcast. Tell us about your own enemies by emailing enemiesthepodcast at gmail.com or calling 323-677-1943. That was a HeadGum Podcast.